Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12, and then at the end of the service, we'll be signing our fellowship covenant, which is exciting. We've been talking about that all month, and it's finally here. Today is the day. But we want to begin with 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. This will form our, our foundation for our discussion this morning. Um, Peter says this, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God, and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. Anybody think Jesus is precious? Amen? I love him. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I love that. It's a little gotcha. You rejected him, but now he's the cornerstone. And he's a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's a good word right there. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. So I, I jokingly titled this message this morning, The Cure for Boredom in 2023, uh, because it is, but it's so much deeper than that. I'm, it's a little tongue-in-cheek, I suppose, the, the title is. But it is. I believe that, that if we can capture what God is telling us here in, in 1 Peter, that it actually does cure boredom, that it gives purpose and meaning and direction to your life and mine, that you've never, that like we've never experienced before. So I just did a little poking around on the internet, you know, my research, and uh, super deep, Googled it, and um, asked, you know, talked about boredom, and I came up with these statistics. I found this article, it's a lifestyle article in New York Post magazine. They said the average American spends 131 days of boredom each year. And that's all added up, like that's not whole days, that's uh, fractions of days, but when you add it all, put it all together, it's 131 days of boredom in a year. They said 60% of Americans that they surveyed believe that their life is too, quote, grown up, unquote. 
And all of this, which is interesting, all of this is despite the fact that we spend an average of $303 a month on fun activities. Now, I don't know who has 300 bucks a month to blow on fun activities. I know I don't, but man, they're still not having fun after spending 300 bucks a month. Wow. I wonder if all of our entertainment has drained our lives rather than fulfilled them. You wonder? I wonder, it's, it's like we think that if I have more entertainment, then my life will be more fun. But what if that's actually not the secret to a fun life? See? And what if all of our busyness and activity is actually just masking our need for something that's more fulfilling and more meaningful? I got good news. I'm convinced that the cure for boredom is what the Bible calls making disciples. And I'll explain how this works here as we go on. Peter nails it in chapter 2 that we read here a moment ago. Here's what Peter tells us right here, okay? First of all, let's just walk through this. Verse 4, Peter says, first of all, you and I have come together. Part of what brings us together is we share the same living stone. We've come to the living stone. And I love how he calls Jesus that. Because Jesus is not just a, you know, an inanimate dead rock. Jesus is a living stone, isn't he? So he's firm and he's solid and he's someone on whom I can trust, but he's living, he's active, he's powerful. And I love that concept, a living stone. And he is your living stone and he's my living stone. And we come together and we share that living stone and that's what we have in common. If you think about it, that's really what brings us together. I always marvel at on Covenant Sunday and, and often throughout the year in our church, I look around you and I think, what brings us together? Like in any other setting, you know, we're so different. We are in many ways. And, and yet the one thing that brings us together is our love for Christ. We share the living stone, see? And then Peter says, that this is what makes us different from everybody else. Verses 7 and 8 are sort of the, uh, the bad news, if you will. See, it's what sets us apart from the rest of the world. So we find Jesus as our living stone, but the rest of the world, yeah, they stumble over him. He, he's somebody that offends them, and they don't really want him. So they've rejected him. You've received him. And he says, and because you have received him, look at verse 9, the word but. He says, they, they've rejected him, but you are, can you, can you own these labels? Because this is you. This is your identity, friends. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's special possession. This is who you are because Christ is your living stone. And Peter doesn't stop there, does he? Peter tells us that there's a specific purpose for you and me being chosen people, royal priesthood, and so forth. Look at the word that in verse 9. You could almost put the word so in front of it or in order in front of it. So we are chosen people, royal priesthood, so that or in order that we would declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is our message, isn't it? This is what we share with the world around us. Hey, look at man, I was lost and now I'm found. 
You know, all, all I know is I was blind and now I see. All I know is I, I, was, I was messed up and, and, and now the Lord has healed me. Like, I know what freedom looks like. You know what I mean? Like, that's our message, isn't it? And, and if he can do it for me, then he can do it for anybody. And that's, that's verse 9, so that you would declare the praises of him. And he says, once you were not a people, I love that. At one point, you and I, we weren't at all, but now we are. And once you were, once you were not, you had not received mercy. You were living outside of God's mercy. But now you do. Now you live in his mercy. Amen. And his mercy's new every morning. And so then with this, Peter gives you and me a job to do. And that's verses 11 and 12. And he essentially tells us two things. You need to abstain and you need to engage. Right? He says, first of all, dear friends, I urge you, abstain from sinful desires. So these are old ways, man. These, that doesn't fit you anymore. You know, sin is like that in our lives. It's not a rule. It's not God saying, hey, you better not, wagging a finger in your face. It's more like, you know, these things just are not you anymore, are they? I don't know. Have you noticed that in your own life? I know I have. Things that I thought was fun, things that I thought were really meaningful 15 years ago, 10, even five, a few years ago. I'm like, hmm, eh, they just don't have the same appeal anymore. That's a good thing. Abstain from those, he says, but it's not just about saying no, it's also about saying yes to a mission. And the yes is, I live such good life, see what he says, among the, I love, I've memorized verse 12 years ago, live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they would see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. So you know what, they, they, might, they might argue with your beliefs about certain things, but may they not be able to argue about the quality of your life. See, they might argue about what you say is right and wrong, but may they not argue with the quality, with the results of your life. Does that make sense? And that's what he's saying. You live such a good life, man, that your life actually becomes a testimony that the people around you say, you know, I would really like a marriage like that. Look at the way they love each other. You know, I'd really like a family like that. Look at how their family, they got that together, man. You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's the idea. That's the whole concept. And that they see Jesus in the way that you and I function. And so Peter calls us to that. So that's a breakdown of those verses. But I want to go back to what he says in verse 9. He calls us a royal priesthood. You see that term? That stands out to me. So let's just talk about that for a second. Royal priesthood. It's two words. First of all, royal. You are royalty. You are. You say, well, how'd that happen? <laughs> I, don't, I don't feel royal. Yeah, you are royal. The moment that you gave your heart to Jesus Christ, the moment you trusted in him as your savior, as your, quote, living stone, as Peter says, in that very moment, you became adopted into the family of God. That made you a child of God. That made you a brother or sister of Jesus Christ. That made you a co-heir to the kingdom, and that makes you royalty. Royal blood flows through your veins. You need to begin to own this, my friend, because it's important for what God wants to do through you. You know, we, we run around a lot, of, a lot of Christians, like we, we tend to think we're like the, you know, the, the B team, you know. 
and we, we, we downplay like your importance. You downplay what you carry, friends. Like, oh, I just, you know, I'm just muddling through, doing the best I can in Jesus' name. Praise the Lord. No, 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 no. You are royalty. You are not insignificant. Your life matters. Your life has influence. But it's not just royalty. You're a priest. He calls us a royal priesthood. Do you remember from our study in Leviticus a year and a half or so ago, we talked about priests and what a priest does? What's a priest's job? A priest's job was to be a bridge. It is to be a bridge between God and people and between people and God. And so check this out. This goes both ways. When you pray for a friend, you're being a priest because you are taking their needs to God. That's a priestly function every time you pray. It's called intercession. That's the Bible word for it. And you're being a priest when you do that. And whenever you care for someone who's in need, whenever you give a cup of cold water, you help someone out who's in need, that's a priestly function because you're expressing the heart and the love of God for that person. You're being a bridge. You're being God's hands and God's feet as you do that. That's priesthood. That's being a priest. And Peter takes these two concepts together, royalty and priesthood, and he mashes them together, and he calls us a royal priesthood. So we are a people who own the kingdom of God, which means we have access to unlimited resources. And our work in this world is to use those resources to bridge the gap between God and people. That's our work. You're a priest. Can you tell the person next to you, hey, you're a priest. Okay, I'm telling the priest. You're, you're a priest. You're a priest. Uh, Father, blessed art thou, mother, you know, right? However you want to do that, right? Have you noticed somewhere along the line, we've stopped being the priesthood and we've hired priests instead? Have you noticed that? Like, but this was never the heart of God. God's heart, biblically, is that we all our priests in the name of Christ. So where did this idea come along where you hire a priest and everybody else just, you know, puts money in the plate and hopes good things happen? See, you would say, well, Doug, does this mean you're quitting? No, although I've certainly thought about it a lot of days in the last many years, okay? But here's, but, but here's what does need to happen. Let's just define my job, okay? My job, let's remember, as someone who gets paid to be a, quote, priest or pastor, my job is to equip and train you to be priests along with me. And I believe God judges me on that criteria. He judges my work. I shouldn't say me, not me. Thank God I'm not under judgment. Amen. But certainly my work is judged and evaluated based on that criteria. How well did I do at inspiring you to embrace your identity as co-heirs with Jesus in the kingdom of God and equip you to work as his priest in this world? That's my job, see? That's the job of any pastor. Other people make hamburgers. Other people teach classes. Other people build computers. Other people develop profitable businesses, sell insurance, whatever it is. And all good work, all good work. But my job as a pastor 
is to inspire and equip a God-smitten people who turn this upside-down world right side up with the love and the power of God. That's what a pastor does. Would you agree that our world needs more God-saturated leaders? We actually have a slide there. Would you agree that this world needs more saturated leaders? See, the church is a gifted community of people, not a community with a gifted pastor. But our gifts, yours and mine, are not meant to stay in-house, like inside our little community. Yes, spiritual gifts are meant to build up the body, but think about it. What's the purpose of building up the body of Christ? Is it just to make us fat? I don't think so. The body of Christ is meant to be built up, that she has a greater impact in the world. So the gifts that we have, that we develop, are actually not for us, they're for others. So let's take these gifts that God has put within us and develop them and work them, because if we do, then the world will benefit from it, see? Please understand, inspiring and equipping you to lead is not about recruiting more volunteers for New River Church. That's not the goal, although certainly that's a fringe benefit, I suppose, in the, in the short run, but in the long run, that is not our objective at all. We owe it to the world to do our job well, to raise up Christ-like leaders. We, we owe it to them. Would, would you agree that when the church does her job of forming Christ-like people, the world actually benefits from that? Like, like, wouldn't you agree that we could use some more Christ-like politicians? How about, uh, can I get an amen there? How about, would you, would you agree that the world could use some more Christ-like business people? What do you think? Think that could be a good thing? How about, how about more Christ-like educators? What do you suppose? Pretty good? Yeah, that'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? If the world had more Christ-like people working in technology, wouldn't that be a good thing? In medicine, in research, like, wouldn't these be good things? See, where do you get Christ-like people from? The church. There you go. See, this is our job, is it not? See, I love the fact uh, that we have some two young ladies in our church right now working on their PhDs in math. Blows my mind away. Just, I marvel at it. And we have, we have one young man working on a PhD. I can't even really explain what your PhD is in, Stephen. It's, it's so cool. That's what it is. But you know what? I pray for God's blessing on you. I pray that, I pray that you get two PhDs, you know? And I pray that you get yourself some fellowship in some university somewhere and you live for Jesus, and you shine a bright light in those halls, you know? And, and you know, I love the fact that we have people in our church who are brand new to this country. They've recently immigrated here. You know that God brought you here as missionaries? Whatever it was that brought you here, I know hard circumstances and difficulties and so forth, but can I just say that ultimately the hand of God is on your life, and he brought you here. May God anoint your work and the life that you're building here, and may it be a shining light for years to come. America needs missionaries here. I love the fact that some of us are retired, 
and you've finished your career, but you're not wasting your retirement on golf outings and RV trips and stuff like that. But you're actually giving your retirement to Jesus. You say, I'm going to serve Jesus with the time that I have left. May God anoint you. May he use you as an encouragement to the next generation, to the next generation, to equip them and enable them to go far and to make a huge difference. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot. I didn't share this in the first service, but I'll share it with you guys. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. You know, I'm coming, I guess, the needle in, in my life is moving closer to that retirement group than it is to the Ph.D. group, right? And I'm not so sure how I feel about it. But I, I'm, I'm coming to this realization in my own life that, like, I don't have the same vision and the same energy that I had back then, right? But I have more money now than I've ever had. So you ready, old people? It's going to scare the bejeebers out of you. What would happen if we combined our money with their vision and their strength? See what I mean? Just something to think about. Because I know that when I was 25 and I had all the vision and the energy, I didn't have the money either. And I know I didn't have older people encouraging me, older people blessing me. I had a lot of criticism when I was 25. At least that's what I remember at 25. And I know that I've said to the Lord, there's no way I want to be that. And I'm realizing that I'm there now, and I want to give everything I have to be an encouragement and a blessing every dollar I have to help you do awesome things for God. Anyway, okay, that's not even in the notes, but that's a freebie. We call ourselves New River, okay? New River Church. And you know as a river, you know what a river does? Rivers flow. And as they move downstream, they pick things up. And then they carry them downstream, don't they? And I think that's a great picture for who we are as a church and what we do. I don't know how long you will be a part of New River Church. Maybe you'll be here for a year. Maybe you'll be here for the rest of your life. I don't know. But however long that you're here, may, may the moment that the Lord directs you out, you, know, you step out, out of this river into some other, the moment that that happens, I pray that you'd be able to look back and say, the time that I spent there, man, I, I became more like Christ. I got developed. I learned about leadership. I learned about, I learned about service. I learned about myself, who I was, what God's called me to be. Like, I am more equipped and, and better able now than I was when I first started those people. I was, I was just thinking this morning, as we, early in the morning, I was here praying and praying about the covenant that we're about to sign. And the Lord just took me back to the last 25 years of all the people, just faces kept coming to my mind of all these people that, that have signed this covenant before over the years and, and who are no longer with us. They've, they've moved on. Some of them are part of other churches. Some of them have moved out of the area. But for whatever reason, they're just, you know, they're not here signing this covenant today. And I was just thanking Jesus for the impact that each one of them has had on this church body, 
over the years. Like we are who we are because of their influence, even though you might not be in fellowship with them right now, but they have influenced us. And I pray that we have influenced them and that the kingdom of God is so much stronger as a result of that partnership that we had just temporarily. See, we're a river. So here's the issue. Jesus only gave us one plan for how to make this happen. He didn't give us a program, and we touched on it last Sunday. His one and only plan for making this happen that I'm talking about is making disciples. Making disciples is not the job of a program, a church program, and it's not the job of a specialist. It's actually the calling of every single man, woman of God. If you call yourself a Christian, you are a disciple maker. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul told Timothy this, and, and it's important before I read it that you know this, that Timothy was a pastor of a church. And so this is Paul talking to a pastor, telling him about his ministry in his church, okay? And Paul tells Timothy this. He says, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men, who will also be qualified to teach others. So Paul is saying, I taught you, you teach them, they teach others. You see how that goes? I taught you, you teach them, they teach others, and they teach others, and it just keeps on going. And see, this is not unique to Paul. This is not an idea that Paul just came up with, you know, some strategy that he came up with while he was getting beat up one day or shipwrecked or whatever it was he was going through. This is actually a concept that goes all the way back in the Bible to the very first page. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, this is actually called the cultural mandate. It's what theologians call this, where shortly after creating Adam and Eve, the first two human beings, God told them this, I want you to be fruitful and to multiply and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, you got to notice two things real quick about this verse. The first thing is subdue. See the word subdue? Subdue implies that the earth is wild and untamed and needs to be subdued. It, it implies that the earth needs people who know how to wrestle with it. They know how to cultivate it. They know how to harness all of its potential to bring about human flourishing. That's what the word subdue implies. And then number two, notice the only way for Adam and Eve to effectively rule over and subdue the whole earth, they have to be fruitful and multiply. They can't just do it as the two of them. Now, obviously, this is not just about making babies, although certainly that is implied in being fruitful and multiplying, but it's bigger than that. It's about training up. It's about equipping people who know how to rule and know how to subdue. This is part of the mandate, actually, on your home, Christian parents. Part of God's mandate on your home is to teach your children who they are in Christ, and teach them how to harness the potential in this earth to lead and to influence in the name of Christ and in the power of God. Like, that's part of your mandate on you. Make disciples who understand that they are made in the image of God and given a mandate to build and influence others. So the next time we see this concept, it starts there on the first page. We see it again repeated in Genesis chapter 12 with Abram 
God speaking to him, and he makes this outlandish promise. He says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I imagine Abram standing there under that starry night sky, dizzy, just having been smacked by God, you know, the blunt force of his words to him. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. A man surrounded by sheep living in a tent. All peoples on earth will be blessed by you. Now we know that in one huge way that was fulfilled in Christ, right? Jesus, the Messiah, comes to the world through Abraham's lineage. So absolutely, that was part of what that implied. But there's another part of what that implies as well. In that this, God's intention was that the people of Abraham would always be a light to the world. It was God's intention. In fact, there was a point in the Old Testament when God judged the people of Israel for their failure to not be a light to the Gentiles. The point is that Abraham by himself could not do this for the whole world. He, there needed to be more like him. He needed to be fruitful and multiply to make it happen. The concept is repeated throughout the Old Testament of the prophets. Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Jeremiah, I like Jeremiah. He's kind of a drama queen like me. And Jeremiah says, Jeremiah goes, the word of God is like a fire shut up in my bones, he says. I love that verse. He had to get it out. He couldn't hold it in. And then you've got Jonah. We all know about Jonah, don't we? Who was called to preach the gospel to Nineveh and didn't do it. And got swallowed by a big fish and so forth. But you know, Jonah's a picture He's a picture of disobedient Israel, called to be a light to the nations, who refused to be a light to the nations and went the other way. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, he says this, God says, For the earth, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's quite a vision, isn't it? The whole earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, like, like water, like the oceans. Clearly, there's no possible way for that to be accomplished through one person or one church or one group of people. And of course, the loudest and the clearest voice of all is Jesus' own voice, who told us, we looked at this last week, go and make disciples of all nations, all ethnicities. We talked about that. And the Bible ends in Revelation with this beautiful picture, the Spirit of God partnering with the people of God to call the rest of the world to come and get a free drink of water from the fountain of life. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. So God partners with us in calling the world to come and come get this free drink of water from the fountain of life. So you see, this is deep, deep in the heart of God. You see, that's what I'm trying to show us. Deep, deep in the heart of God. Like so much so, one more verse, that he even told the Jews, the Jews who were prisoners of war, deported to Babylon. And here's what God told those Jews. Increase in number there 
and do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Isn't that something? So you're being carried away into exile, into this strange city. You're being punished for your sin. But while you're there, I want you to seek the peace and the prosperity of the place where, you're called, where you are. Do you see it from Genesis to Revelation in good times and in bad times? This is God's heart for you. You weren't saved to sit on a couch and watch QVC all day. You know, you weren't saved to, you know, live for yourself. We're literally living under a divine mandate to cultivate, to build, to multiply, to influence, to subdue, to rule, all of that. Or to put it as Jesus put it, so simply, just go make disciples. Or as the Apostle Paul put it, I teach you, you teach them, they teach others. That's essentially what I just said in all of that. You say, well, that's the brilliance of the Bible, isn't it? It took Ralph all that time to talk about that. And Paul just says, you teach them, they teach others, go do it. Simple, making disciples is what we're called to do, friends. And I'm convinced that it's the cure to boredom. It's the thing that gives your life and my life purpose like never before. You know, even, even the 12 steps to recovery, isn't the 12th step that you become a sponsor for someone else, right? Because they know intuitively, right, that the best thing for you to enjoy the freedom and the recovery that you have is to begin to give that to someone else. It applies spiritually. Make disciples. The best thing for your faith. And it's not just, you say, well, what is it? Well, I can tell you what it's not. It's not memorizing a few Bible verses and church stuff, although that might be part of it. But discipleship is about the complete reformation of a person's character. It's about having my worldview shifted and brought into alignment with the values of God. It's, it's about my work ethic. It's about, it's about my finances. It's about my sex life, my friendships my politics. It's about all of that being dominated by heaven's standards. My whole life coming into alignment with heaven, you see. And this can't be learned in a book, although studying and reading is certainly valuable, and we don't want to dismiss that. But it's why God's called us into Christian community. Because like iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. God puts us in close Christian community, and we begin to see these principles lived out. And that also helps us to grow. So I want to just close this morning, and I promise this is the closing and we're signing. I just want to encourage you to do a couple things. One is, if you're not in a life group, would you get in a life group? We're about to start our next season, starting next week. And, uh, and if you would like to be in a life group, the title of the season, the thrust of the season is something I'm calling Killing Me. How's that for fun? It's all about dying to self. That's really the point of it. And uh, I think it's going to be a very powerful, very impactful, actually, season for all of us. And if you're not part of a life group, I would love for you to be part of a life group. And the way to do that, if, you, if you're interested, is you just go on our website, and you'll see that icon right there on the front page, and just click that, and then follow the prompts, okay? And then you, if you're in a life group, I'm going to ask you to do something else. I'm going to ask you to take it a step further, and I want you to consider leading a life group. Would you go to your life group leader and you say, hey, thank you for being my life group leader. Would you teach me how to lead a life group? Because I'll want to lead two. You will make them cry. I promise. It will touch their hearts.
okay? They would love, because listen, you know what? Your life group leader can tell you that they learn more by leading than you do by attending. And I'm only asking that for your good. I'm telling you that for your good. You've got to take the next step. You can't just sit in the chair and be a part of the crowd. If you take that next step, it will benefit you in your walk with Christ. You say, well, I've never done that before. I don't even know if I'm qualified. That's perfect, okay? Please, friends, I hope you know us by now that you're free to fail here. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's okay. And you're probably going to have some, you know, ups and downs, and that's appropriate. That's all part of the process. We're growing, aren't we? We're growing. You hear that? We're growing. See, that's the idea. And then, and then I want to take it one level deeper. You ready? One level deeper, and that's this. I want to challenge you to get connected to a discipleship partner, a partner. During this next season, so starting next Sunday, during this next season, it's going to be rather intense, and, we, and we've designed the material to, to not only just be good for small groups, but also to be good for one-on-one or one-on-two discipleship partners, okay? Because in your groups, you're not going to have the time to talk about a lot of this stuff. I mean, you'll have some time. But you, you understand that if you're, if you're having a cup of coffee or you're on the phone with somebody, you can go a little bit deeper there. Does that make sense? And these questions that you're going to be looking at, they're, they're pretty, you know, Open, open you up kind of questions, and, um, and it's, it's going to go a little deep. So I want to encourage you to find somebody, even before we leave today, while we're signing the covenant. Jonathan, you can come. I know you're, he's, he's, he's itching to go. You come up, Jonathan. And um, if before we leave today, while we're signing the covenant, would you go to somebody and say, hey, would you be my discipleship partner for this next season? And if you do that, would you then go to the website again and click this icon, you'll see, and then that'll follow that prompt, And because I want to be able to know who's connected with who, so that I can be praying for you and encouraging you and resourcing you and that kind of thing. Does that make sense? So, so if you would do that, please, that would be awesome. Now you say, well, what does all this have to do with changing the world? I thought you've talked about how, like, the church impacts the world. Here's the deal. You've got to learn it here, but it doesn't stay here. You see that? We learn it here, but it doesn't stay here. And so this is all about learning to hear. Because the better we are at making disciples here, like learning how to do this, the more effective we'll be there in doing it. So it's very much with the world in view. Um, We're not ignoring that mandate at all. I just want to close with this real quick thing. You know, Adam, I mentioned Adam and Eve a moment ago. Adam's big failure in the garden was passivity. It was not aggression. Adam didn't do, in a sense, didn't, what he did wasn't nearly as bad as what he didn't do, if I can say it that way. I mean, Adam didn't, didn't say no when the fruit was offered to him by his wife. He didn't stop his wife from eating the fruit, right? He didn't say, honey, no, this is, this is not a cool deal. Don't, don't do this. He didn't do that. He went along with it. Um, And then I always wonder, like, why did he let the snake right into the center of the garden? Like, you ever wonder why he didn't just stop the snake at the front door? Like, how, how did the serpent make it all the way to the center of your home, Adam? He was asleep at the wheel. Adam's problem was passivity. And I say this, it's still a major problem in the church. 
passivity amongst God's people. We hear a message like this and we think, boy, that sounds interesting. Doug, you really make some great points there, man. And then we leave and we have lunch and we forget. At, at best, maybe some of you took notes, great notes. You put them in your Bible someplace and then you forget about them. See, that's passivity. Friends, um, the result of that, the result of not following through, the result of not making disciples is you have an anemic church and a dying world. And that's what we've got right now. Friends, we owe it to ourselves, we owe it to the world to really get disciple making right because it's the only thing that Jesus has left us to do. It really is. He couldn't have been more clear. So let's sign in for that on 2023, amen? In, in, in a very big way, that's what we're signing this covenant for this year. We're saying we're gonna make that, that's our emphasis. We're, we're, gonna, we're gonna nail this thing. We're gonna get this right once and for all this disciple-making thing. And so I'm inviting you to join me in that effort, okay? Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.